Hello and welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Mike Pershawn. I teach in the Department of English at McEwen University, and the following was a lecture that I gave to my students in a course on narrative across media. This was in the winter of 2021, and we were comparing Station Eleven, Emily St. John Mandel's post-apocalyptic, or is it, novel, uh, with Robert Kirkman and Tony Moore graphic novel slash comic book, The Walking Dead. In his article on Station Eleven, Maximilian Feldner uh, says that usually post-apocalyptic stories tend to present a rather negative view of humanity, depicting a post-catastrophe world of violence in which the human survivors are determined by their struggles and efforts to survive. Cormac McCarthy's The Road, 2006-2009, both in its literary and cinematic incarnations, or the popular AMC television series The Walking Dead, 2010-2018, can be taken as exemplary for this tendency. It's interesting to me that Feldner talks about both the literary and cinematic incarnations of Cormac McCarthy's The Road, but only mentions the television series of The Walking Dead. And I don't want to imply, I don't want to, I don't want to suggest that Feldner is embarrassed to talk about comic books, but it, it's interesting to me that he brings up McCarthy's novel and the movie based on it, but he only talks about the TV series when it comes to The Walking Dead. It almost makes me feel like there's this echo from Station Eleven uh, where uh, in uh, the section of the text called uh, I Prefer You With a Crown, um, Miranda's, you know, crummy boyfriend Pablo has no interest in comics. He doesn't understand the difference between serious graphic novels and Saturday morning cartoons with wide-eyed Tweety Birds and floppy-limbed cats. My experience with comics in academia is they are an embarrassment to just about everybody. No one wants to talk about them, and if they do, they want to call them graphic novels. You don't teach courses on comics. You teach courses on graphic novels. Uh, I taught a course called um, Comic Books and Graphic Novels. It was a senior seminar. And the reason I went that way is because there is a difference between these forms. So today we're looking at Station Eleven, the section of the uh, the novel called Toronto. And we're using it uh, in... We're using The Walking Dead as our contrast point. But because Station Eleven talks about comics so much, I feel like it it, it would be remiss of me to not include a comic book in the course. And it's taken me years, actually, to get this in here. So um, I've had iterations of this course where there were no actual comic books. We looked at Calvin and Hobbes in the way that I did in the last lecture. But we never really got around to a, a bona fide comic book. Last time I talked about how comic books are defined as periodic series produced in the comic medium. The stories in a comic book are released episodically and can continue indefinitely. And if you read the introduction to volume one of Robert Kirkman's The Walking Dead, he speaks about how he's, there's a sort of ambiguity as to whether or not he knew when he wrote that introduction, how far he was going to take this story. There's a sense in which it might just go on indefinitely. 
And then you have the graphic novel, which is a graph, a standalone long form narrative produced in the comics medium, a standalone long form narrative. So this is distinct from what, what were, what continue to be the monthly comic books. So a comic book comes out monthly or bi-monthly. Uh, it's, it's periodic and it's a periodical like a magazine. Uh, once upon a time, you could pick up comic books at your local convenience store, uh, grocery store, they would have these spinny racks that had comic books on them. And today, mostly we buy those sorts of comics from specialty stores, which uh, cater to comics fans. Gr uh, comics as graphic novels, on the other hand, we can find at chapters. Uh, most book stores carry them. Um, they're far more popular than they once were. And children's graphic novels uh, I have seen in convenience stores and uh, really large drugstore chains like London Drugs, Shoppers Drug Mart will occasionally carry very popular children's graphic novels um, the, along the lines of Amulet or Bone. But The Walking Dead, you'd probably have to go to your chapters for. Or again, you go to that comic specialty store. Um, but The Walking Dead was was hugely popular as a comic book. It's why AMC picked it up as a TV series. And if you're wondering why I assigned the the collection of the comics instead of, you know, having uh, the TV series available to watch for my students, it's because you can't control um, the graphic nature of a film. You can't stop those images from coming at you. And since I was already going to uh, produce an assault on the senses in terms of graphic violence, I, with Mad Max Fury Road later in the semester, I thought I would not add injury to insult by also assigning The Walking Dead. Uh, I don't mind assigning violent or disturbing content in senior level courses that are up to a student uh, in terms of choice as to whether or not they want to take that course. But this course is required for students. This is this is one of the ones that you have to take on your way into the university, uh, the rest of the university. And so I felt like, well, if we're all locked in here together, it's kind of unfair of me to be assigning something that might be super disturbing. A comic book, on the other hand, is uh, we can control to some degree how fast that imagery comes at us. We don't have to turn the page if we don't want to. I suppose you can always turn the TV show off. But again, it's just you have a greater amount of control over reading comics or prose, for that matter, than you do of the, you know, instantaneous jump scare uh, of a show that's intended to shock or um, disgust. And some people find The Walking Dead just objectionable in that way. So I wanted to be careful with uh, those sensitivities. But that says something also about the way that Robert Kirkman and Tony Moore produced The Walking Dead as a comic book. And we should know that in a way, the entire series of The Walking Dead can be understood as a graphic novel. Now that the series is over, we can say, okay, it's a long form narrative and it's standalone, at least in this huge collection of uh, collected volumes or even single issues. They've, they sort of stand as a uh, graphic novel. I wouldn't want to make too much of a distinction there because I really couldn't refer to, if, if I'm not going to accept The Walking Dead as a graphic novel, then I ought never to refer to a number of Charles Dickens's works as novels because they were originally released periodically. They were released episodically. And uh, as was H.G. Uh, Wells's War of the Worlds. 
So we, we have a little of both here. We have the comic book and we have the graphic novel. One of the things that was sad for me about getting the collected edition, and I, I'm sure that there are higher prestige format collected editions, it's just the sort of thing I would not force my students to pay money for, was that the covers for the individual issues were not included in the collected volume and you have no idea where each issue ends. Now, you can figure that out by going online to a Walking Dead wiki and they'll give you a summary of each issue and you will be able to figure out where each issue ends. You might say, well, why would I care? We learned something about the intention of Robert Kirkman as writer by taking a look at where he sticks the cliffhanger. Because a, a monthly comic book wants to bring you back. It wants you to pick up issue two, issue three, issue four, etc. And if it can't tantalize you with something, you, you, might, you might not feel as strongly that you, you need to pick up that next issue. But it's like, it's like when we, we, we watch any television show across a streaming service, um, we've got that little break point where, you know, would you like to, you know, they start jumping to the next episode and you have to make a decision about whether or not, you know, am I going to commit and watch this or am I going to go do my homework? Um, and so Netflix can just keep us going. And comic books want to do the same thing. They want to keep you going. They want to keep you uh, hooked on, 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 the, on the content, hooked on the narrative. And so ending on a cliffhanger is one of those techniques. But if you go and take a look on those wikis, and I mean, I'm going to tell you where each, uh, each issue ends anyway, um, we learn an awful lot about what, what Kirkman's intention is for this comic book. What, what is the point of it? And if you read the introduction to uh, volume one of The Walking Dead, you'd know, you'd say, oh, he, it, this, is, this is, you know, what I'm about to demonstrate by showing you. But it, this, is, this is me saying, like, how can we read comics to understand perhaps some, some of that deeper content that we want out of serious literature? Um, the first issue ends with Rick Grimes shooting the zombie on on the lawn and it's not a, an action moment it's not a will he live moment it's it's a what happens next moment because he drives off into the distance but this isn't a cliffhanger in the sense of you know an action moment this isn't like stuff blowing up and we're not sure if rick grimes has lived through it instead it's character moment. It tells us something about who he is. The fact that he stops to take the time to end this miserable creature's life says something about who he is as a character. The second issue ends with him finding his family. Ends with him finding his family. His wife yelling Rick, his son yelling Dad, and those are both their, their own individual panels spaced uh, roughly the same, but running all the way to the edges of the page, which says a lot about how important they are. The more space a comic artist gives to the writer's story, the more important it is to the narrative. And writers will often indicate, uh, or writers sometimes indicate in scripts that they write. They write scripts just like a, like a TV script or a film script. And that goes to the artist who then interprets that for the page. But we get three panels with this reunion. Wife yelling Rick, son yelling dad, and then this sudden jump in closure to the, all of them embracing and him saying, oh, thank God. And 
the landscape at the bottom of that page bleeding out outside the frame there it's it's not within the 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 comic panel so there's that same sense that we looked at last time with calvin and hobbs where they're rushing out to adventure and there's no panel restraining them this is a big moment is one of the things that we can interpret from the way that that uh that tony moore handles panels in the walking dead issue three ends with rick's old buddy partner looking jealously at rick and his wife and what we know by then is that there it sounds like this, you know something was up something was going on between them while they thought that rick was dead and 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 his partner's not happy about that resolution issue four ends with a conversation between rick's wife and the partner where she says that night that thing that we've been wondering about as readers that night was a mistake. Look at what we're getting for, for, for ending pages. Where does the comic end each time? And, and what does that tell us about what the point of this particular comic book is? Because, I mean, The Walking Dead, we, we know, is about zombies. And I, and I won't reveal, you know, how issues five and six end, because you can go and you can check that out. And because The Walking Dead is about zombies, I suppose we would think that each of the issues would end with these full-page splash drawings with no tiny borders of Rick down on the ground in that in, in this urban, uh, this, this huge city. He's on his horse, surrounded by zombies. That looks to me like the kind of cliffhanger we'd expect from The Walking Dead. Or when Rick and the young kid who rescues him go back into the city to find guns. And we see this tank and all these zombies. I mean, it's just a sea of zombies. That's a good cliffhanger if the whole thing is really just about zombies. But if we go back through all of those final pages and we, we understand them as these transition points... Um, moment to moment, action to action, subject to subject, scene to scene. What are we moving between for issue to issue if we consider how each issue is ending? And what we would surmise is the same thing that Kirkman talks about in the introduction to the collected edition, which is, this is the story of Rick Grimes, a cop who gets shot, he ends up in the hospital and wakes up to a zombie apocalypse. But it's his story. And it's not just about his story intersecting with zombie violence. It's his emotional journey as a character. And I'm, I think about this, uh, you know, I was, I've been thinking about this as I'm reading a book called The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet. I can't remember the author right now. But it's about um, a crew of a spaceship who have to go do a job in this area of space that's quite dangerous. And... It's very episodic. It would make a great television show, but not much really happens. There's not like a lot of laser battles. Uh, there are some tense moments, but the whole narrative is character-based, solidly character-based. And when we have a character-based narrative, people will often complain, nothing happened. I say this about short stories often. I remember reading short stories when I was in my intro English course and going, nothing happened. Oh, are you sure? Is it just that nothing blew up? Is it just that no one got their arm chewed off? Now, we still have moments like that in, in um, The Walking Dead, but it's, it's largely, it's largely character-focused. We also want to take a look at Walking Dead just to see how the comic book operates. Again, in the same way that I did with Calvin and Hobbes uh, last lecture, I want to take a look at how closure 
is generated through the layout, the careful layout of image and text all on one page so that when you turn the page, you get some form of shock. So you look at this right away. First thing that the writer and artist do in The Walking Dead is give us this moment in Rick's life where he's hunkered down uh, with his partner and they've got this crazy, you know, criminal with his, I ain't going to back out, die first moment. And he shoots Rick. And the way that Tony Moore draws it, it looks like Rick loses a, a good chunk of the right side of his body. It, it, we, 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 we realize it's a brutal, brutal wound. So what kind of, you know, moment to moment shift do we get here when we turn the page? Well, we're probably expecting moment to moment. We're probably expecting action to action. We might assume, and this is the thing about the way that we read, is that we're always jumping ahead. We're always trying to figure out what's going to happen next. We love to anticipate where a narrative is going to go. And Lord knows we want to let everybody know. And, oh, I knew that was how it was going to end, right? That's those bragging rights, right? I knew that he was the villain the whole time. Or I knew the secret end to whatever movie um and 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 not in a i read it on the internet way but you figured it out just by taking a look at that we we love to know that we've solved the puzzle of the narrative in that sense but good storytellers want to subvert that they want to challenge that and uh kirkman and moore do that right off the kick because we get one page of this shootout and we turn the page and it's not moment to moment. It's not action to action. It's subject to subject is what we get and, and potentially scene to scene. So we've got subject to subject on the first page, moving back and forth between the perspectives of the criminal and Rick and his partner. And then when we turn the page, Rick wakes up in a hospital. That's a huge jump. That's a scene to scene jump. That's a massive moment of this to that. And in many ways, it mirrors the sorts of jumps that we frequently uh, experience in Station Eleven. We and we don't just we don't just experience um, scene to scene, or we experience those subject to subjects, right? Because as I've already said, the focalizer changes from section to section of Emily St. John Mandel's narrative, and then in, in, at some points within now within a single section, we're getting multiple focalizers but not in a, they're all in the same scene. It jumps around in time, in space, in perspective. But interestingly, if you're paying attention, not thematically. Thematically, Emily St. John, John Mandel is ringing that bell of um, survival is insufficient over and over again. And some of the elements, the motifs that we've talked about with terminal language, both an end of a thing and the transitory nature of moving from one space to another, one life to another, one world to another. Rick wakes up, explores the hospital. We get uh, a page of action to action where it's all Rick and there's just moments between the panels, just moments between the panels. And this is, this, this happens in film too. All of these types of transitions, they happen in film, they happen in prose. They're just handled differently in those media. So we can take these ideas of these different forms of closure and apply them to other forms of narrative. It's just that in comics, they are visualized for us. And so we can see them in a way that we don't necessarily uh, immediately see in prose and is harder to see in film because film just keeps coming at us with image after image after image. Whereas a comic book, 
lays those images out on a page. But there is significant overlap between these forms of media. And we might say that the comic book is the space where prose meets film. Some film people will probably really argue with me on that because they say like, there's no sound, there's no motion, you need motion for film. I'm just saying the visual element, the visual language of film being utilized in comic books. I, I don't think that that connection can be, you know, you, you can't say, oh, there's no connection like that whatsoever, because there are a lot of people who work in storyboard art, the kind of uh, images that, that are created to produce a film. When we get to Mad Max, we're going to learn, I guess we're learning today, uh, that that movie had no shooting script. It just had a huge number of storyboard art, huge amount of storyboard art. And that was basically the script. And that kind of art is often drawn by uh, comic artists or storyboard artists find work as comic artists because comics is sequential art. What kind of sequence are we looking at? We had action to action with Rick walking down the hall. And then we've got this moment again where you turn the page and you have to think about the, 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 um, the process by which Tony Moore has to think, how do I lay this page out so that Rick opens the door in the last panel? How do I ensure that the reader has to stay on this page and can't get, you know, we, we don't have the zombie uh, food fight, <laughs> um, the zombie cafeteria that happens on the next page. We don't get that as the last panel of that page. Instead, we turn it and we get the shock of the zombies walking around this uh, zombie right up at the front. Great, great splash page again. And, and they do that frequently. That is a, that is a move. That's a stylistic move that we get over and over again from Kirkman and Moore. Uh, great, uh, use of what's called a standard nine panel page. Uh, nine panels fitting perfectly if they're all a little higher vertically than they are wide. Um, and, uh, action to action of Rick walking around his neighborhood right uh, before he gets a shovel in the head. And what I love about this is that we've got Rick kind of looking in the eighth panel of this page. And in the ninth panel, we see the shovel, but we don't see who's holding it. We just see hands and a shovel. And that almost acts like what's called a non sequitur in sequential art, which is where you go from one panel to the next and you go, uh, and you're not really sure what that is supposed to mean, but then we flip the page and boy, do we ever get a payoff? We get Rick getting a shovel in the back of a head. And then this playing out of three panels at the bottom where this young kid yells to his dad, you know, I got one, <laughs> not a zombie son. Uh, but Rick's the, the moment of violence, um, where the, where the shovel hits Rick is outside those bordered panels again. So I think it, it's really cool the way that, that that's used over and over through this book, really, really great comics art, even if you don't love the content. And one more thing about the way that this book is designed one of the reasons that i chose it over using the amc tv series is that it's in black and white and black and white reduces the intensity of the violence we're not seeing all the blood and guts in all its you know grand guinal gory detail because we don't have the color um, without the color, it reduces that effect. I mean, famously, uh, Quentin Tarantino took one of the fight scenes for Kill Bill and rendered the whole thing in black and white. And the ratings board said, Oh, okay, we, we'll, we'll accept that now. Cause if you can't see, if you can't see the red of the blood, apparently it's not as intense. 
And I, I think that, that that is true. There is a there are versions of uh, the art from Walking Dead that has been colorized. That the color has been added to, and it's a it's a more intense experience in some ways. Um, the big splash coming after the you know the, the 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 page again this this repetition of a stylistic move. Rick entering the city, that iconic art that became the the poster for season one of The Walking Dead, followed by him going around the city, and then we see a few zombies encroaching and then we turn the page and we see just how much they've encroached again and this is the closest thing that a comic book can get to a jump scare it's the closest thing that a comic book can get to a moment um there's a there's a horror comic um called clean room written by gail simone and i can't remember the artist's name but there was a great moment in that series uh that the artist talked about on twitter he said we've got we've got some stuff this month that's really, really disgusting and disturbing. And I remember replying to that tweet saying like, and how would that be different from any other month with clean room? He was right. He was right. It was super disturbing. And the way that it was laid out was just like these, these pages where we get lots of action, a number of small panels, maybe an entire page of smaller panels, that nine panel layout. And then we turn the page full sized art, the entire page is one thing, and it's meant to be a kind of like a gut punch or a jump scare, uh, a moment that makes us go, oh, because the, there's nothing else to see. That art just jumps out at us. Same thing as, as, as what this artist was talking about with this comic clean room. Turn the page. Did not want to see what was on the next page. Absolutely was right about just how disgusting that was. But again, we've got action to action uh, between each panel. Subject to subject, because we don't just have Rick's perspective, we also have the zombie's perspective and this weird low camera perspective. Uh, if we were using cameras in this in this medium, there's this really low angle that looks up at Rick, uh, you know, with his back turned. I love I love that Tony Moore draws him with his back turned, uh, that we're seeing Rick from behind as though the zombies are sneaking up on him. But we can also see that the zombies have snuck up on him from the front, right? That he is, that he's surrounded. It's a really, really great panel. Wonderful, wonderful comics art. But in as much as we have these moments of small panel, small panel, small panel, big surprise. We got to remember what I, what I was, I started out demonstrating that the walking dead uses character moments, at least for this first volume, character moments as its cliffhanger from issue to issue. What is the comic focus on? What does the artist focus on? Where does the comic bring the point that's like, come back, come back. We want you to keep, we want you to keep. Because you can, you can do a standard cliffhanger, which is like, whatever will happen next. But I think Kirkman is a gifted enough writer that he had to have known what he was doing. There's too much consistency here to not have, you know, like that every one of these issues ends on a character moment and his own statement that this is Rick Grimes' story. And then you get these amazing pages where it's, it's a full page with multiple panels, but the art doesn't change all that much from panel to panel. And Scott McCloud calls this moment to moment shifts in, in, in the narrative. Rick sleeping next to his son, sleeping next to his wife. There isn't really a lot of shift in the art. In fact, I have no doubt that this was scanned, uh, perhaps originally drawn in a digital environment, but the art gets replicated. Because it's, it's, too, it's too similar for it to just be redrawn. 
And you, you, somebody might say, well, that's just because the artist was lazy. No, it's because what the artist is trying to do is to create a sense of time slowing down that we spend an entire page with our eyes scanning down panels. And there's hardly any, there's like Rick gets, there's these, Rick gets this one speech balloon and it's got an ellipses point in it. Three, three dots, right? These three periods, like he almost says something and then he just reaches out and touches his wife's face. There's moments of quiet, emotional development being rendered by a repetition of horizontal uh, panels, really long panels that stretch almost to the edge of the page. Where very little happens, moment to moment, where there's this this quiet, emotional event happening. And this is the thing about when people say, like, oh, I didn't like the plot, or there wasn't much to the plot. Again, what do you mean by that? Because if this is a character-based narrative, then big things can happen, even if big things aren't happening. Think about it in terms of the way that we've been talking about this semester with the difference between the big world-smashing apocalypse, the external apocalypse, and the little apocalypse of a person's emotional world, the back and forth that Walking Dead also plays with those things. So, you know, no, this isn't a panel, this isn't a page where, you know, guns are going off and there's all sorts of, you know, violence, but there are deep and powerful events going on that are interior events. And, and we need to pay attention to those in a narrative. Because if that's, if that's what most of the film, the TV show, or the book is about, and you're like, I didn't like the plot, there wasn't much plot. You say there wasn't much plot. Are you sure? Or was it emotional plot? Was, was the plot centered on emotional events? Small apocalypses. We get a number, though, of these over and over again. These, these pages where long horizontal panels, very little movement, allows us to have this slow reception of the material. The moment when the, uh, this predatory bird, this vulture looking thing is picking out a, a corpse. We hear, and then, and we see the last two panels with blam, blam. That's, and, and the bird flies away. That's, that's a, a quiet way of delivering what's going to happen next with the narrative. We slows the, it's like the narrative slows down so that we can pay attention. But I think if we read Walking Dead, we, we understand at the very least, whether we read it in the way that I was just talking about or not, we, whether it's emotionally focused or not, we can certainly agree, even just reading volume one of, of uh, The Walking Dead, that we can agree with Maximilian Feldner saying that Station Eleven presents an unusually optimistic and hopeful vision of an otherwise bleak future, that you know, he talks about Cormac McCarthy's The Road, and I didn't assign The Road because nobody needs that much bleakness in their life. Um, Walking Dead is enough. Uh, but to read Walking Dead, Feldner's saying, hey, you know, Walking Dead's an example of the usual pessimistic and bleak visions of, this, of, of the post-apocalyptic future, whereas Station Eleven is not. Now, um, you might say, but, but there are elements like that. There are elements like that. We do have moments where the narrative focuses on uh, violence and that kind of typical post-apocalyptic world. And I've had students argue that the that Kirsten's narratives, the story of these two black knife tattoos that she has, the knives that we see on the front cover of Station Eleven, that that some would argue that those are evidence of this being dystopic 
of this novel being just as bleakly post-apocalyptic as some other work. And my response is, look at the way that we get moments of violence in the work. So with uh, Station Eleven, let's go back to part four, the starship, where um, this guy, Diallo, who has a sort of newspaper, is interviewing Kirsten Raymond in the post-apocalyptic future of Station Eleven. And he says, but perhaps you could just tell me, I won't talk about it, Francois, and you know better than to ask. I won't talk about it, Francois, and you know better than to ask. And then in the section uh, called Toronto, we we return to that interview, and Diallo apologizes for asking. He says, I shouldn't have asked about the knife tattoos. She says, forgiven. Thank you. I wondered if I might ask you about uh about the collapse right and so we get these little jumps back over to the interview with kirsten um later on another one as far as i know uh or sorry diallo says and so when you left you left toronto you just kept walking with no destination in mind and i love this transition because right before this we had jeevan leaving toronto walking with no destination in mind and then emily st john mandel gives us a cliffhanger um, so again, there are these sort of structural similarities here. Uh, but she thematically moves into Diallo saying, and so when you left, you just kept walking with no destination in mind. And that's really great. We see that sort of thing in film and it, it creates a sort of content, uh, uh, conceptual continuity. And Kirsten replies, as far as I know, I actually don't remember that year at all. Now listen to that. I actually don't remember that year at all. Now, some students will say, but you know, um, I know what happened there. How do you know? Emily St. John Mandel never says. She never says what happened in that year. None of it, Diallo says. Absolutely nothing, she replies. Later in that, on that page, she says, I can't remember the year we spent on the road, her and her brother. And I think that means I can't remember the worst of it. I think that means, she says, I can't remember the worst of it. But I've had students who tell me Kirsten was raped on the road. And I'm like, is that in the book? Oh, it's, it's there. You can tell. Uh, no, no, I can't. What we know is that awful things happened in the first year. We get hints of that in Jeevan's walk across the lake, right? This silent landscape, snow and stopped cars with terrible things in them. But notice that she doesn't tell us with, you know, in gory, gratuitous detail what those terrible things are in the car. Whereas within the first issue of The Walking Dead, Rick has seen many terrible things and Tony Moore has made sure that he's illustrated them with some level of detail. Stepping over corpses. But none of these corpses get up and try to chew your leg off. The road seemed dangerous. Jeevan avoided it, staying mostly in the woods. The road was all travelers walking with shell-shocked expressions. Children wearing blankets over their coats. Maybe that was Kirsten and her brother, but the book doesn't say. We just, you know, we can make some inferences. People getting killed for the contents of their backpacks. Hungry, hungry dogs. He heard gunshots in the towns, so he avoided those too. He slipped in and out of country houses, searching for canned goods while the occupants lay dead upstairs. That is, that's a bleak future, no doubt about it. But how many lines in the entire section of Toronto does that take up? 
And I want us to consider what does the irresolution, the irresolution of Kirsten's backstory have to do with Mandel's theme of survival being insufficient? If Mandel won't resolve this issue for us, what does it say about her focus? Because it's not just Kirsten Raymond who won't talk about it. It's Emily St. John Mandel. I've had students ask me about stories that we read. The short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find by Flannery O'Connor, where a family on vacation crashes into a ditch. They all get out of the car. They're all okay. But then along comes a serial killer and his cronies, and they end up shooting everybody, including the baby. And my students say, why didn't any of the characters do anything about it? And, and I always go, I totally relate. I understand. My mother would have like chewed someone's arm off. My mother is a very fierce woman. She would have picked up a rock and at least made the attempt and been shot down perhaps in the attempt, but then we'd have felt some sense of vindication. But the mother of Flannery O'Connor's a good man is hard not, a good man is not, is hard to find is not my mother. Flannery O'Connor created very particular characters in a very particular way to deliver a story with the title, A Good Man is Hard to Find, because nobody's very good in that story. So we don't really have any heroes in that story. We have to take a look at the way that the narrative is constructed, not the way that we wish it were. And we can't allow our own experiences or even our own awareness of what the world is currently like to color the way that a text's diegetic world uh, the fictional world, so when I say diegetic world, we're talking about the fictional world, how we read that. You can't come to the text and say, I think Kirsten was X, Y, or Z. This is what definitely happened to her because Emily St. John Mandel never says. I mean, she does tell us a little bit more about how she got those knife tattoos later on, but we never really learn what happened in year one, other than the fact that she can't remember, and that probably implies that it was awful, but we... We can't say we know for certain what the nature of awful was in that particular moment in the, or in that, that moment that isn't on the page that isn't in the text. We can only work with what's in the text. So again, go back to the walking dead. What do you get? You get, uh, scenes of explicit violence, not after some hours, he heard gunshots far distant as it is for Jeevan at several points in the narrative uh, of Toronto. Where, where is Jeevan? Think about that. For Toronto. Where is Jeevan? Well, he's in Toronto. Sure. But where specifically? He's in his brother's apartment looking down upon the city. And we get a sense of what's going on in the world outside of the apartment. But again, this is a pretty quiet apocalypse. I mean, if we had to compare and contrast Jeevan's experience in Toronto with Rick's experience, this is a significant difference here, right? Jeevan's is pretty quiet. Jeevan's is pretty laid back. Jeevan sometimes heard gunshots at night. Or the, the moment that it says the thoughts of fires in a city without firefighters hadn't occurred to him. Now, right there, narratively, there is the potential for a scene where the entire building burns down. But Emily St. John Mandel never imagines it. So we might read that and we extrapolate what's happening, but the text doesn't. It focuses through Jeevan on the experience of being with his brother for these last weeks culminating in his brother's sacrificial suicide to allow Jeevan to go out into the world. Again, compare and contrast that with Rick in the city. Rick's down on the ground. Jeevan's way up high. Rick's down on the ground with zombies. Jeevan doesn't have zombies, period. So there is a difference in the way that these texts are focalized. Even if the narrative elements, the motifs, the story 
is similar in some way. The end of the world, post-apocalyptic. There's there are significant differences, and it's not just zombies, right? Because there's there's serious threats out there that Jeevan and his brother talk about. And what we do when we do any of the kind of reading that I've been talking about today is is close reading. And close reading is when we're paying really, really close attention to the text as it is written, not how we wish it was or what we might, you know, we, uh, oh, you know what I thought should have happened in that one part? Jeevan should have, whatever, you know? And I think we do do that because, and there's nothing wrong with it, just so you know. I mean, as creatures who love story, as storytelling animals... We will almost always put us, put ourselves in the shoes of the individual and ask, how would I have reacted? It's why disaster movies work is because we sit there going, Ooh, would I have done that? Could I have handled that? Would I have survived? What would I have done if I'd been on the Titanic? What would I have done if I was on the Poseidon when it capsized? You know, so we, 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 we do that. And that's a, that's a very, um, emotional, subjective response nothing wrong with it. But if we're going to analyze a text and say what it is about or what it means, then we do a close reading. And one of the things that we're told to do in close readings is to look for patterns, repetitions, contradictions, and similarities, because those establish some of the meaning of the text. And there's a repetition of the language of survival in the chapter called, or in the section of the book called Toronto. There's still a world out there, Jeevan said, outside this apartment. Now, there's a, there's a bunch of other words Emily St. John Mandel could have used in that sentence. There's still life out there. She could have written that. But she wrote, there's still a world. The number of times Emily St. John Mandel drops language that has this sense of not the ending of the world, but the ending of a world are manifold. There's all these, these, these repetitions of that as a, almost, almost as a linguistic motif. Um, when Jeevan was a whatever, right? We get these, these references that she makes to when Jeevan had some other job and that was another life for him, right? Not the life that he's currently living. His brother has had other lives as well. Um, and in chapter, if we can call these chapters, these little chapter breaks, chapter 29, in a different lifetime, Jeevan had stood outside Arthur's house by the hour, smoking cigarettes and staring at the windows, dazed with boredom. In a different lifetime. And you think to yourself, no, no, it wasn't, because it's still the same lifetime for Jeevan, and yet we know it's not. Because Jeevan has moved on from life as paparazzi to life as guy who's, you know, dating and not sure what he wants to be, might want to be any might want to be an EMT. And then we get Jeevan living the post-apocalyptic life. So there are worlds. There's still a world out there, Jeevan said, outside this apartment. I think, Frank says, his brother, I think there's just survival out there, Jeevan. Now, there's tons of words Emily St. John Mandel could have used instead of survival. Why does she use it there? Because she wants that repetition of motif to reinforce the theme of the novel. I think you should go out there and try to survive. But there's more to it, right? There's more to life than just survival in Station Eleven. Sadly, not in Toronto, not in this section of the book, which is why I brought it into conversation with The Walking Dead, because this is one of the chapters where there is mostly just survival. Although she keeps shoving 
moments of, hey, don't forget that survival is insufficient all the way through it. Um, we get a reference from Frank's uh, memoir that he's working on. He's working on this memoir for this famous philanthropist, famous unnamed philanthropist. Before they were famous, my actor friends were just going to auditions and struggling to be noticed, taking any work they could find, acting for free in friends' movies, working in restaurants or as caterers, just trying to get by. And there's a there's a point in the in the novel where, you know, Jeevan is asked, you know, about the work that he does. It's making a living, but it's not living, right? Being a paparazzi is just trying to get by. When Miranda is trying to get out of the relationship with Pablo, there's a sense in which the 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 she's just existing. It's just survival. And it's not post-apocalyptic in the way that the novel will become or the, the way that the novel will already become by that point. The events that are lying ahead of them are these grand catastrophes on a, on a, on a massive scale. But Emily St. John Mandel keeps coming back to this intensive scale. And that's I, my pause just now was, was because there's these two words that Susan Sontag uses. Susan Sontag was a, a feminist writer and a great film critic. And she wrote um, this wonderful essay called The Imagination of Disaster about science fiction films of the 50s and 60s. And she said they're not really about science. They're about disaster. They're about aliens coming down and blowing everything up. And she said there's two modes of the imagination of disaster. There's extensive, which is the White House getting obliterated by an alien craft in Independence Day. That's extensive. That's not Susan Sontag's example. That's mine. And then there's intensive. And intensive, intensive is up close. It's personal. It's Jeevan and his brother in the apartment. In fact, we could say that a lot of the, the moments in Walking Dead are extensive, but Walking Dead has lots of intensive moments too. But put them side by side and Emily St. John Mandel goes way further with the intensive moments. So the majority of the action in Station Eleven is intensive, at least the, the action that is focalized for us. Again, remember, it's not so much about the events of the story, but rather the way in which those events are mediated, those way, the way those events are focalized for us as a reader or a viewer. It's like those disaster movies, you know, Jeevan had said in the movie version of this, there's afterward. And Frank says, I don't think there's going to be an afterward, but in, in disaster movies, there's an afterward. And that's, it feels like Emily St. John Mandel, again, saying something about terminal language, that something's going to come after this, that there's going to be a remnant, that there will be somebody left over. But Jeevan heads out, his brother commits suicide, Jeevan leaves the apartment, and he sets out. And when, again, we think about the focalization of Jeevan's experience as he walks along uh, the lake, one of the Great Lakes, leaving Toronto, he's alone for quite a bit of it. I mean, there, there comes a point where he meets some other people, but he's mostly alone. And this section of the book, I think, is less intense and violent in the same way that Walking Dead is than it is just sad and lonely. Now I'm going to talk about unity of effect. I just find this part of the novel melancholic, that it's sad. It's sad that he loses his brother. It's sad that he's out there by himself. It's a lonely image that we are left with at this point in the narrative. And again, we have to, we have to compare and contrast that with the vision of, of Station Eleven and understand that, as Feldner argues, Emily St. John Mandel's future, the post-apocalypse, is gentler. Because Jeevan hears gunshots far away. He's not front and center. 
for the action like Rick Grimes is. So many, many, so many panels of uh, The Walking Dead include blam, right? The gun going off. So bringing these two texts into uh, comparative space with each other helps us to understand what Emily St. John is, St. John Mandel is up to. Uh, if we just read Station Eleven by itself, we might think, oh, this is a really intense novel, it's really bleak, it's dystopic, just like Patrick DeWitt says. But when we bring it into conversation with other texts, like The Walking Dead, and Feldner does that over and over again, in fact, many of the academic papers that I've read, essays that I've read about Station Eleven, bring it into conversation with The Walking Dead, which is why I wanted us to be able to have that comparative node as well. Now, next Next up, uh, we're going to be taking a look at the section of the book that is titled The Airplanes. Or sorry, no, it's The Terminal. Or is it? Now I'm confused here at the end. Uh, it's The Airplanes. Haha. <laughs> um, making mistakes on YouTube for everybody to see forever. Uh, the Airplanes is up next. And we're going to also be having a conversation about game narrative, because there's a way in which some of the stuff that's going on in the next section of the novel intersects with the interactive nature of game narrative. So we'll see you next time for that discussion. <laughs>